Have you ever been perfectly content doing things a certain way with no real desire for changing or for doing things differently? Maybe you're perfectly happy to, to drive a particular brand of car or to use a um, certain kind of farm implement or to, to use a certain kind of product. You, you've always driven a Ford or you've always used John Deere your whole life or you've been using a Microsoft computer. It did everything you needed it to do. You had no desire to change, but somewhere along the line, you were converted to something different. Someone showed up and said, you know, this other product will do some things way better than the one that you've got currently. A Honda is way more reliable than a Ford. That New Holland tractor has some features that make it way better than your John Deere. And so you switched from green to blue. Or someone convinced you that an Apple computer is much easier to use. And you don't have to worry about getting viruses. And so you made the switch. But now, not too far into that switch, you started to realize that that changeover isn't going as well as you thought. It's bringing up other issues. You're not sure you really like all that change. You kind of like the old and familiar. You, you knew that particular product, and now it's gotten to the point where you start thinking, what would it be like, or what would it take to go back? How can I cut my losses and go back to the way things were before? That new stuff might be way better, might be way more efficient, but I kind of like the way things were before. Well, we're back into the letter of Hebrews this morning. And the people that this was originally written to were kind of in that same boat. They were Jews. And Jewish religion and the whole system that came with that religion was familiar to them. The thing is, they'd heard about Jesus Christ, and, and many of them now professed to be followers of Jesus Christ. Someone had explained to them that following Jesus was the only way to get to God and, and to get to heaven, ultimately. And they had told them that Jesus is the one to, to whom their old system pointed, and that they didn't need that old system anymore now that Jesus had come and died and had risen and had been exalted to his place in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And they believed it. At least for some of them, initially and to some degree. But even though all of that switchover made sense to them in their heads, there were some things about Christianity that were not so good on a practical level. Most of all, that they were now under the threat of persecution and opposition, exactly because they claimed to follow Jesus. And all of that had them thinking about whether the old familiar way had some appeal. They started to think that maybe that old familiar system wasn't so bad after all, and that following Jesus was not all that it was cracked up to be. What they actually had was a basic understanding of who Jesus really was. They had an elementary kind of knowledge of who he was, but it wasn't thought through. That's really where we left off a few Sundays 
back at the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. There were certain truths about Jesus that they didn't understand, and they get reprimanded for that. The writer here wants them to move on to maturity. They weren't connecting the dots. They, They really didn't understand how much better trusting Jesus was compared to the old way. And so the old way still held some kind of attraction for them. Well, if you're thinking of going back to a Ford, I'd like the opportunity to convince you to really think about that Honda. Before you go back, I'd want the chance to tell you some of the advantages of having that brand. And the author of this letter is trying to convince these people about something too. Only it's something that has far greater worth and far more important than a car. He's trying to convince these people that Jesus is way better than anything that they had before. He's trying to help them to see that Jesus is better than the best thing that their old and familiar way of relating to God offered. Now that's essentially a summary of this whole letter. But we're in chapter 7 today, and he's writing here about one specific aspect of Jesus that should make them want to hold on to Christ on the one hand, and on the other hand, to let go of everything else that promises to grant them access to God. And so I want to read Hebrews 7 for us, and if you have your Bible with you, I just encourage you to follow along as I read. And just pay attention as I read to the flow of this, because as I go through this, and we're going to go through the whole chapter today, I'm just going to sort of pick on certain points of it. So as I read now, just follow the flow. For this Melchizedek, maybe just let me read the end of chapter 6. It says that talking there about Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf into the inner place, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then chapter 7, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned the tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor, the end, of li- nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. That is from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable, well, let me just stop there at the end of verse 10 for a minute. Now, when I read that section, I wouldn't blame you if you thought, what is that all about? <laughs> this is, now this is getting into the hard section of Hebrews, the, the section that we have a problem, problems relating to in some ways. And you might be thinking, who in the world is Melchizedek? Even if you know your Bibles pretty well, even if you read through your Bible, starting with Genesis 1, I I could understand if you missed this part. 
you're going, really? Was that in there? Did I read that? Did I miss it? Abraham, you likely know. But that other guy, maybe not so much. But I'd understand because Melchizedek only shows up in one verse in Genesis 14. He just sort of appears in a a part of a story and then he disappears again. Except for one other place where this incident is mentioned in Psalm 110. But if you were reading through the Old Testament, you wouldn't think that this Melchizedek was a major Bible character. Uh, This story definitely doesn't make it into your Sunday school lessons. But for the author of Hebrews, this sort of enigmatic and, and mysterious character from that small section of Scripture is a guy on whom he builds the point he's going to make. And so we'll get back to him, but let me finish Hebrews 7, picking up now at verse 11. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there be for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the whole point is here is how does one become a priest in that system? And if Jesus isn't part of the tribe of Levi, he's the part of the tribe of Judah, how could he be a priest. That's what this is all about. Verse 18, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's the important verse in this chapter. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever." Now that's thick, but let me try to thin it out a little bit so that make it a little bit more understandable for you what's going on here. So now we see a little bit more about what God wants us to know from this passage. The author wants to show these Hebrews that following Jesus and trusting Jesus is better than that thing that they wanted to go back to, to the law, to the old system of priests, to the former commandment, the old covenant. 
And it's not so much that following Jesus is something totally different from what they knew before. In fact, Jesus himself was Jewish. But it's that with the coming of Jesus, the whole purpose of that old system has ended. It was obsolete as as far as it went in its benefits and in its usefulness. It actually could not finally accomplish what they wanted for themselves, which was to get right with God. It could not finally accomplish that. Temporarily, yes, but not finally. So that's what he wants to show them. He wants to show them that they need Jesus in order to get where they want to get. And for us, even though we're not really connected to that old religion of the Hebrews, we have exactly the same need, which is to get right with God, to find acceptance from God. And in order to gain that acceptance from our Creator God, in order to get what we need most as humans, we need Jesus. And specifically, we need Jesus in his role as a priest. We need Jesus to take us to God and to secure forever and eternally our relationship with him. And we can actually see that best when we understand the Old Testament. And even this quick story about that guy from Genesis 14 named Melchizedek. Now, we've already been introduced to Melchizedek a couple times. I showed you the one in chapter 6 there, and uh, just maybe we'll go through that again. But at that time, I always said, you know, we'll get to that later. We'll get to that later. Well, this is the later. And we actually see him there, like I said, in that last verse of chapter 6, where it says that Jesus has become a high priest. So Jesus now has become a high priest after the order of this other priest, Melchizedek. But now we read about who he was and why he matters. And the first verses of Hebrews 7 just basically summarize Genesis 14, 17 to 20, which is when Abraham's nephew Lot was living in Sodom and got taken captive in a raid by a coalition of kings. And so Abraham and 318 men go and take out these kings and they rescue Lot. But on the way back from this siege, this guy comes out and meets Abraham, this guy named Melchizedek. And it says that he's a priest, and he's also a king, and that he blesses Abraham with the words of God himself. He sort of acts as God's messenger in blessing Abraham. And then Abraham responds by giving this priest a king, uh, priest and king a tenth of everything. And then the la- that's the last we ever hear about Melchizedek. So it disappears off the scene. But the very fact that this is the only thing we hear about him is actually part of the point, back now in Hebrews 7. And so you see that story there in verses 1 and 2, and he explains the meaning of his name at the end of verse 2. He's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. But then in verse 3 it says that he's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Well, Melchizedek would have had a mother and a father. And he was born and he would have died. And I think, by the way, that Melchizedek was a real person. There are some people who think that he was just, a, was just Christ appearing as a, as a priest. But I do think that Melchizedek was a, a real person in history. But because he disappears from the scene and we never read about him again, that silence there makes it look like he's different than the other Old Testament priests who had to have a genealogy. That's what they needed to have. They needed to fit into that line of priests in order to qualify. 
They have to come from the tribe of Levi, and their father has to be a direct descendant of Aaron. And so Melchizedek, in that sense, was different. We never read where he came from or that he died. And in that way, verse 3 says, he resembled the Son of God, and he continues as a priest forever. So we can see right there that the reason Melchizedek's story is only told here is to point us to Jesus Christ and the fact that he is a different kind of high priest, a greater kind of priest. Jesus is more worthy of of the attention of the Hebrews than their old familiar ways, their old familiar priests. And he's more worthy of our attention. And so in verses 4 to 10, he actually goes on to show how this one priest, Melchizedek, is greater than the whole line of priests that came from the tribe of Levi. In fact, because he blessed Abraham, he has to even be better than Abraham himself. Now, that really would have gotten their attention. Abraham was the father of their nation. He was the descendant of Levi. And now this writer comes along and says in verse 4, says, out of all things, he says, see how great this man, this Melchizedek, was. But he's really pointing to Jesus, isn't he? This isn't ultimately a story or a section about Melchizedek and his greatness. This is about the one who is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who in his divinity, in his godlike attributes, had no father or mother or genealogy. Jesus always existed. And so it says Melchizedek resembled the Son of God. It doesn't say that the Son of God resembled Melchizedek. Jesus existed before Melchizedek, eons before him. He's eternal. But Melchizedek is a type of Christ, and that his name means righteousness and peace, and that he has neither beginning of days nor end of life. And that last part, no end of life, is really important in the section from verse 11 to the end of the chapter. Because now the author, having firmly planted Melchizedek in their minds, shines his spotlight on the superiority of Jesus. And for this original Hebrew audience, he really wants to drill down to show how Jesus as a priest really just supersedes and nullifies the need for that old system. Jesus is the better high priest. But this priestly role of Jesus means everything for me and for you too. This priestly role of Jesus means everything. And so I want us to see how all the rest of this chapter really just funnels into what he says in verse 25 and how it's Jesus that we all need. One of the things I find sometimes in talking to Christians, even looking at myself in the mirror sometimes, in the way I relate to God, is that there can be some conceptions of God that are just a little off or maybe just focused on the wrong things. And we can all fall prey to this. And I just want to sort of frame this into two categories. Over on the one side, there's the conception of God as a genie of sorts. In this view, people sort of call on God whenever they need him to help them out a bit. For the most part, they go on with their lives pretty much on their own. They they don't pray. They don't practice any spiritual disciplines. They don't spend time in God's Word. They, they don't acknowledge Him. But they know that God is there if they need Him. Maybe when they're in trouble. Maybe when they've managed their time so poorly that they're now 
desperate to finish something and they say, Jesus, God, help me. Or maybe they've blown it and now they call on God to get them out of it. It's almost like when some young people go off to college and, and go off to live by themselves for their first time, their, their lives sort of get focused on their network of friends. But they know in the back of their heads that if they get in trouble or if they run out of money, they can always go back to their parents. Well, if that's your perception of God, you're missing out on something that could be so much better. Or, there's a related image where God is just someone who's a figure with whom people had some kind of connection in the past. He was a very important figure, but now he has no real present reality or influence. This person would point back to an experience they had with God way back then. They'd say something like, Back in 1969, I found God. Or, maybe even more recently, last summer at camp, I met Jesus. But that's where it stayed. Their life never changes. There's no evidence of any kind of transformation. They don't really look or act different than they did before. They might come to church once in a while just to check in and make sure that people think they're on the right track. And if they're asked, they would say, yeah, I became a Christian way back then. Now this conception pictures Jesus as a kind of uh, a life insurance policy. When it's convenient, if it's a liquid insurance plan, they, they they can claim a relationship with Jesus. Yet for all intents and purposes, they don't look any different than the world. And and when it comes down to the end, this kind of person thinks that they can just cash in on, the, on that plan that they bought way back then. One of the many problems with this conception of God is that it views the conversion experience as something that happened in the past. But the gospel has no effect today. Both of those misconceptions have one thing in common. And that's that they make God out to be very distant. They make him to be far off, maybe a distant memory. They might even picture God as disinterested, unless he's called upon. So he's kind of off doing his own thing, and, but you can get his attention sometimes. And the reality is that in some very profound ways, God is distant. But the distance is because of our choices, and specifically because of our sin. But God is definitely not disinterested. If he was disinterested, he would have just left us to face the just consequences of our sins. But the story of the Bible is that God purposed to make a way for that distance to be eliminated. And that's exactly where the concept of a priest comes in. The role of a priest is to bring people near to God. God made a provision in the Old Testament for people to deal with their sin problem and to receive forgiveness. It involved blood, And it involved sacrifice, uh, a sacrifice that sort of acted as a substitute for the sins of the people. And the man that would carry those, uh, let's call them substitutionary sacrifices, to the altar and would sprinkle the blood of an animal uh, in the Holy of Holies, that place that represented the presence of God, was the priest. He represented people before God and would make atonement for their sins. But the problem with that whole ceremony and system and priests, a system which was established by God, which 
which was needed for a time. The problem with it now is that is what these verses here are all about. Look just at verse 11. Now, if perfection had been uh, attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? You see, the Levitical system could not attain perfection. Could not attain, uh, attain completeness. Could not bring us through to the end, to the ultimate goal, which is eternal life. It was an imperfect system. It had flaws. And verse 18 says the same thing. When it, when it comes to dealing with sins completely and forever, it is weak and useless. It says, therefore, the law made nothing perfect. See, it's impossible for us to keep God's laws, as we uh, learned last week from the story of the rich young ruler. And so sacrifices had to be repeated over and over again. Down in verse 27, it says sacrifices had to be offered daily. Another problem was with the priests. Number one, they kept dying and had to be replaced. Verse 23 says that they were prevented by death from continuing in office. This shows us that the Jewish priesthood couldn't ultimately deal with death, which is the ultimate penalty for sin. And finally, the priesthood where, where priests were descended from Levi had another issue, and that priest sinned. Back to verse 27, he had to make sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people. And so the great need for these people from whom this letter was written, and the great need for you and for me is for a priest. A priest, yes, because we can't deal with sin on our own. But what we need is a different kind of priest. A priest from a different order. A priest from a different tribe. A a, a better priest. A perfect priest. So enter Jesus. The true king of righteousness. And king of peace. He deals with every one of those flaws. Every one of them. He, He dies once and for all. No more sacrifices needed. He lives a sinless life as he became the perfect Lamb of God. He doesn't have to deal with his own sins because there are none. He deals with the sins of his people and ultimately he never dies. He does die on the cross, but he is raised to life. That's a huge emphasis in Hebrews 7. In contrast to the many priests who die, Jesus is the forever priest Verses 17, verse 20, verse 28. And he has the power of an indestructible life. Verse 16. We need Jesus as our high priest because through him, through the power of his resurrection, we will have an indestructible life in the presence of God. But I want to get back to how we ought to perceive God in this whole issue of conceiving of God as distant or even someone that helped us out back somewhere early in our lives, but is no longer significant. We're happy and thankful for everything he did back there, but, but, but there's no vital living relationship with God right now. But it's Jesus who actually explodes all those perceptions. We need God every day. And it's Jesus who we need every day to take us to God. 
And so when you became a Christian, I'm sure you could all admit that you didn't stop sinning, did you? Our problem with sin doesn't end at conversion. And so we need someone who's going to keep taking our sins to God. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus has to die over and over again. That was once and for all what happened on the cross. And that was gloriously complete and final and eternal. Remember Jesus said it is finished. But what about those sins that we committed last week and yesterday and even this morning? Well, in one sense, Jesus dies for all our sins, past, present, and future. But Jesus, in his role as priest, is dealing with those things even right now. And this is where I want to get to verse 25. This is where all of this is leading. Look again at verse 25 of Hebrews 7. Consequently, after everything he said, he, that is Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost. I'm just saying that this morning. Anyway, Jesus is mighty to save. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Did you get that? We can draw near to God. We can have this living, vital relationship with him since Jesus is always living to make intercession for us. We can draw near to God through our great high priest, who is Jesus. So if you're not a Christian, and you might even be here today and think that you could never even become a Christian, that there's too much water under the bridge, that it's maybe too late. But friend, listen to this again. Jesus is able. Jesus is powerful enough to save to the uttermost. And so if you turn from your sins in great sorrow, and if you trust Jesus to do what you might think right now is impossible, if you do that, then he will rescue you and grant you eternal life. He will, upon the promise of his word. And because of what he accomplished on the cross and in his resurrection. But for us that are Christians, I encourage you not to have a limited and a defective view of God. Draw near to God through Jesus. Allow Jesus to be your priest. When you sin, repent, and then thank God for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because where you just sinned, Jesus was tempted in that same area, yet he never sinned. Because he never sinned, he will take you into fellowship with God. You, you can then stand before God. Through Jesus. In the words of verse 26, even though you sin, Jesus is holy. Even though you are guilty of sin, Jesus is innocent. Even though sin stains you and separates you from God, Jesus is unstained and will take you to God. He never sinned. And because he never sinned, you can draw near to God through Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. Not just in the past, but now, today. God is near. Jesus always lives to intercede. He is with God and he will take you there. He is alive and he is active. And even though you still live in the presence of sin, Jesus is always at work. Petitioning God, that's what he's doing. Petitioning God for your continuing forgiveness. You have been saved, but you are being saved through the priestly work of Christ. 
We are saved through Jesus. But the reality is that were it not for Jesus, we would not stay saved. We wouldn't. We are too weak. And so without the keeping power of Jesus to save us forever, we would fall away. That's just the truth. It's because of Jesus, our our living and our forever interceding priest, that we can be assured of our final salvation. That he will complete what he began. And so I encourage you today to keep drawing near to God. He desires to have fellowship with you. And you can enjoy fellowship with him through Jesus because he is your high priest. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for stretching our minds this morning. Thank you that you have ordained that Jesus is our forever priest. Lord, we are in many ways unfamiliar with that whole system that happened in the Old Testament that took place, even though we read about it in your word. Thank you for showing us the connections today. Thank you that is through Jesus and through his accomplishments in his life and in his death that we can have a relationship with you in the first place. But we thank you for reminding us today that Jesus exists eternally and that he even now serves as a priest. That he always lives to make intercession for us. Thank you that he is praying for us even now to you. Thank you that you sent him to save us and thank you that you have appointed him to stand between you and us forever. We could never stand before you or even approach you on our own. But through Jesus and in Jesus alone, we can be faultless to stand before your throne. So we pray that you would remind us of our constant need for Christ. Help us to acknowledge you in all our ways. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever.